want to begin reading to verse 1 and read down through verse 14. Thank you guys for helping us to sing to the Lord this morning. We're always grateful for your service to the Lord and to us. Matthew 22, this is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. And again, Jesus spoke to them in a parable saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, "Those uh, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and built and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite those to the wedding feast, as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. You may be seated. Father, there's no word like your word. Every word of yours is true. And yet it's not just an old truth gathering dust. It's living and active. It's more pertinent and relevant than this morning's headlines. And so we would pray, Father, that by your Spirit, that you would stir in our hearts as we continue our worship, that you would be worshiped now through your word, how it's proclaimed, how it's received, we would pray that your word would work in our hearts and souls by your spirit and that you would change us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are making our way through various parables this summer. And uh, this morning we now land at still another parable. We're only a few away from wrapping this up for the summer. But I would remind us that parables deal in comparisons. 
Jesus would tell a story, and that story would be compared to a spiritual truth or reality, or Jesus would point to an object, a thing, and that thing would make a point of comparison to some sort of spiritual truth or reality. In fact, we we see it explicitly linked here, and it says there, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven may be compared. So we're comparing something about this story that follows with something about the, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a wedding feast. Now, in that day and age, a wedding was important. Uh, but I tell you, what, was, what capped even the wedding itself was the wedding feast. It would, it would go on for days. It was a big party. So how much more of a celebration and a shindig would be the wedding feast that the king would throw when his son got married? It's the biggest event in town. Being invited to the king's son's wedding and wedding feast, well, well, by, by analogy, by another point of comparison, it would, it would be more valuable than um, tickets to a Taylor Swift concert. And I'm not even a Swifty. If you were given tickets to that concert, not many of us would say, eh, whatever, I'm busy. I got farming to do. I got business to take care of. You would sell it on eBay. That's, I agree. But anyway, but that doesn't fit the sermon, does it? But, uh, <laughs> um, Who would not want to go to the wedding feast that the king would throw for his son's wedding? And yet, that's the strange irony of this story. No one wants to come to the, to the wedding feast that the king throws for his son. He invites them, and then while he's inviting them, he gets everything ready. He's gotten everything ready. Still no one has showed up yet. He sends the messengers back out to say, everything is ready. Come to the feast. No one comes. People, are, on the one hand, they, 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 they ignore the invitation. They go about their business. On the other hand, they actually beat up the messengers. Now, in the context here, Jesus is, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's in Jerusalem, and on this day, he's actually at the temple. So this is later in the week. Um, and um, the religious leaders um, have been sparring with Jesus all week. And here in this context, the previous chapter, they've specifically been um, um, attacking his authority. On what basis do you say these things? 
Now, what they really want to do is not just spar with him over his authority. What they really want to do is find a way to arrest him and execute him. But while everybody's in public, they're just, they're just being obstinate. They'll, they'll grab him and kill him later. And Jesus gives three parables that, that follow that context. And this is the third. Chapter 22 provides us the third parable. And really the focus of this parable, the point of comparison, if you would, is first toward the Jews and the Jewish religious leaders and what they have done in response to Jesus' invitation to come to him. And what have they done with that? Well, some of them have ignored it, and some of them are going to reach to the point uh, where they are going to apprehend the messenger himself and kill him. John 1.11, at the start of Jesus' public ministry, reminds us, and he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This parable is, by, by way of comparison, uh, stating, describing that stated fact in John 1, 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The king sent his son, and he, he invited uh, all the people to come to the wedding feast of the son, and he particularly came to the Jewish people. He particularly announced himself to the Jewish religious leaders. And uh, they were not interested. It says in verse 8, this is the first point that I think we should circle and around and focus in on in terms of those who refused to come to the feast. Verse 8 says what is urgent for us to grasp here about their refusal to come. And he said, um, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So that's the first big issue that we've got to grapple with this morning. And since they were not worthy, if you read on, uh, the, or just the previous verse to that, the, uh, is that um, they, they were destroyed by the justice of God's judgment. But the question is, the thing that you and I have to leave out of here this morning, God willing, with a comprehension of and an apprehension of is what makes a person worthy of attending God's feast. Now, human instinct would fire off an answer in our own reasoning, in our own what makes sense to us, in our own logic, in our own religiosity, 
when, we're, when, when the question is posed to us, what would make people like you and I worthy to attend the, the, the king's son's wedding feast? And so I'm first going to tell you what it's not, because this is the first thing that's going to come to our brain, naturally speaking. What makes a person worthy of attending God's feast is it's not based upon, it's not rooted in, it's not grounded in our own merit. We do not, we cannot, we are not able, capable of making our own selves worthy to attend the invitation of the king for his son's wedding feast. You see, there is no measure, there is no amount, there is no degree, there is no percentage of human goodness and or religious accomplishment that would earn us the title of worthy. In all of the universe, there is only one who is worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's not our goodness. It's not our merit. It's not our religious accomplishments. As commendable as any of those things otherwise are, they are not commendable before God. They do not win God's favor. They do not earn us and merit us a place at the table of the king's wedding feast, the king's son's wedding feast. A bombshell that Jesus dropped early in his ministry there in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 520, I'm saying, not 522, 520. This is the kind of stuff that gets him in trouble with the religious leaders, but he, I think he probably looked over and said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, unless you can do better than they can do, you too will not enter the kingdom of heaven. <coughs> Those guys are the Green Beret. They're the special forces. They're the SEALs. I can't do better than they can do. See, it was a category explosion there. His point was, you can't do better than they can do, and they can't do good enough. They are still unworthy in their own standing. They cannot get in on their own accomplishments. I got a funny getting in story for you. Uh, this week, um, I took a big, enormous car ferry across parts of, a part of Lake Michigan. And um, for a moment, I resorted back to my five-year-old self. I, I got out of the car, and I went up to, what do you call the thing where, like, the, the, the captain is? The wheelhouse. That, that makes perfect sense. The, uh, the, anyway, so, but 
I, me and my brother-in-law, we were like five-year-old kids with our noses on the window, peering in the wheelhouse, trying to see all of the cool uh, digital gadgets and you know, steering wheel and all that stuff. And, uh, and finally, I guess the, the captain was tired of his wind, windshield getting uh, smudged up. And he goes, And we got to sit in the wheelhouse for the rest of the trip. Oh, that was so cool. We were invited in. We were not qualified to be there. We were invited in. How are you and I qualified to not get into the wheelhouse as cool as that was, but there's something even better than that. Just like there's something better than the Swift concert, but anyway. But something better than that. For when the scripture uses this parable of entering into the feast of the king's son's wedding, he's describing something of the relationship that we can have with the God who made us. The all-satisfying, heart-contenting, soul-filling relationship with the God who made us is likened unto a feast. What would make you and I qualified or worthy to come to the feast of the king's son's wedding? Well, Two things. The first thing is quite counterintuitive. The first thing that you and I have to grapple with, the first thing that you and I have to apprehend and understand is the only way that we could ever be declared worthy is to first of all acknowledge that we're not. We must realize, each of us, our personal unworthiness before God. That we have no merit, that we have no ability to remedy our state of unworthiness. We will always be outside with our nose pressed against the window of the wheelhouse, wanting, hoping, wishing like a five-year-old to get in there and see all that cool stuff. We will always be on the outside until we first of all realize, I don't belong in there. And secondly, and it's so obvious from the life of Jesus the second thing that must occur for any of us to be declared worthy to come to the wedding feast of the king's son is we must come by way of the one who is worthy. We must come to Jesus. We must turn and rely upon Jesus. We must trust in Jesus. We must Follow Jesus. It is his merits that 
makes us declared worthy. It is his finished, perfect accomplishments of a life in which he fulfilled all righteousness by the way he lived. And then at the cross, he exchanges his righteousness for our sin. An incredible swap out. He gets our sin and therefore dies as the just punishment of our sin. And we get gifted his righteousness that qualifies us to come to the feast, to live in relationship with the God who made us. That's the first thing. The question was, how does someone become worthy? The, now, the, as we read on, though, there's another little jarring statement that is made in verse 11. So verse 8 talks about uh, the refusal to come to the feast on the basis of lack of worth, worthiness. The second thing that I want to focus on out of verse 11 primarily concerns the one who was removed from the feast. In a sense, it feels like it's a change in focus uh, from those who refused to come to, to the one who is removed from attendance. But as it turns out, while that, while that feels like a shift in focus, it, it's the second point basically underscores the first point. It makes the same point in a roundabout way. Look at verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, I mean, so I mean, finally we got somebody to come. <clears throat> the good and the bad, in other words, not based upon their worthiness, in other words, regardless of what their status was, because the king himself would fit them and qualify them to be worthy to gather. So the good and the bad are brought in, and yet once they're in there, the king notices somebody who doesn't belong there. And this is how it tells that that's the fact, or that's the case. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Now, this is not a lesson on what to wear to church. This is a comparison that asks a similar question to how are you and I worthy to be in the presence of God? And it asks it from a slightly variated angle, but it's attempting to get at the same point, and that is how do sinful people, you know, people like you and me and everyone else, how do sinful people stand in the presence of God? of a holy God. The emphasis is not on the matter of who's worthy to stand in the presence of God, but the emphasis, slight shift, is who's properly attired to stand in the presence of a holy God. Again, our own natural instinct when we hear that is like, whoa, 
I'm not properly dressed to be in relationship with the God who made me. Our natural instinct is to conclude, is to conclude that, that we must, on our own effort, our own merit, our own works, that, that we must clean ourselves up and change our clothes so that we look presentable at the wedding feast of the king's son. But I would suggest to you that this improperly dressed man is a picture of anyone, anyone who thinks that their righteousness, their goodness qualifies them to come to the feast. And again, what's the focus of the context was the religious leaders. The religious leaders would say, I'm properly dressed to stand in the presence of God. My efforts, my merits, my righteousness has clothed me properly enough that I, on the basis of my own self, can stand in the presence of a holy God. I'm good people. And yet what the scripture tells us is that our own righteousness is but a filthy garment. If we attempt to think, whether it's the question of who is worthy or who is properly dressed, and even that is a metaphorical description, not of the actual slacks and dress shirts that you have on, but the moral makeup of your character. And if you and I believe that it is the moral makeup of our character that would earn us and qualify us a spot in heaven, then we are, we are this guy who comes to the feast in his own merit, his own righteousness, much like the scribes and Pharisees believe that they will be able to stand before God. As it turns out, the king tosses him. He has his hands bound in his, along with his feet, and he casts him into the outer darkness, into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The surest way, the surest way, the first way that you will land yourself in hell is to think that you're too good to ever get to hell. You're on the fast track. You may look good to you, and you may even look good compared to the person next to you. But compared to an infinite, eternal, holy God, you and I are utterly impoverished and bankrupt. And even the what we think are our best garments are but filthy rags. No, the only way that we come to the feast, the only way that we have the outfit suitable to come to the feast, this is the beauty of the graciousness of the invitation to come to, into God's presence, the, the graciousness of God who invites us to come to his feast is the same gracious God who provides us, qualifies us, dresses us to enter into the feast.
There are no preconditions for coming to Jesus. Come as you are. It's the only way you can come anyway. There's nothing that you can do to set God up and take notice. My, 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 my. That's a good one. I could use one of those in my heaven. And yet the rest of the story, this is huge that we grasp this. While there are no preconditions to coming to Jesus, while it is true that we come as we are, we should grasp that in coming to Jesus, where there's no preconditions, in coming to Jesus, there is profound costs in following Jesus. So come as you are, but heads up. You won't stay as you are. You can't stay as you are. And let me explain why that is. At least two things. There's more than two, but I got to go to lunch in a little bit. There's at least two things that happens in the hearts and lives of a person who comes to Jesus and receives the worth of Jesus, who receives the clothing provided by Jesus to stand before a holy God. First of all, and it's the most obvious, it's we've been bumping into this first one all morning long in the sermon, and that is, first of all, to stand in the presence of God, to live in a right relationship with God. You and I need a righteous Standing, which the Bible describes metaphorically as being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That he takes his garment of righteousness and he, he puts that garment of righteousness on us. So Isaiah 61 literally speaks about God putting the robe of righteousness on his people. Or Zechariah chapter 3 talks about when the dirty priest was found, that God removed the, the filthy garments of that priest and put upon that priest, clothed that priest with pure garments. That's what happens when any of us who are unworthy in our own standing when we acknowledge that and we come to Jesus, then the righteousness of Jesus becomes the garment that we are clothed with to stand before a holy God. That the, that, that the worthiness of Jesus becomes the standing in which we stand, in which we come into the presence of a holy God. A whole new status change. But there is more than a status change. So second, the second thing that occurs is that those who receive a new righteous standing before God, then things begin to happen inside of us. The righteous standing that we have is not based upon what happens inside of us, but, but when we're given a new righteous standing, simultaneously something happens inside of us. The Holy Spirit of God moves in and inhabits us. And when the Holy Spirit of God moves in and 
resides in us, then that Holy Spirit, as per his name, Holy Spirit, begins producing and stimulating a righteous kind of trajectory to our lives, a righteous kind of practice and practices in our lives, a righteous direction to our lives. We won't be the same old Joe. Or you fill in your blank, whatever your name is. Why? Because with that status change comes the impartation of the grace of God's spirit to begin to change us from the inside out. Well, the, this parable, this parable of the wedding feast of the king's son, it's a parable here in Matthew 22, but before we get to the end of our Bibles, it turns out that this is not just some sort of fictitious, made-up, unbelievable fairy tale story. Actually, it turns out that the whole movement of history is actually heading toward, this is real, this is not metaphorical, this is, this is not mythical, that, but all of history is, is, is heading toward the wedding feast of the father's son. All of history is moving toward the fact that as the eternal state kicks into reality, that Jesus will be getting married and that the father is going to throw a shindig of a feast that launches us into the eternal state. And yet... That reality that's described in the book of Revelation has a few twists that don't quite coincide with the beauty of the parable of the wedding feast of the king's son. A surprising twist. You see, in the parable... People like you and I, people who have trusted in Jesus, people who, re who receive the worth of Jesus and are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, in the parable, we are guests at the wedding, which is cool. I'm fine with that. But God's not fine with that. That's not, that's not the, the end game of God's grace Listen to a couple of verses in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard a, what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. And this is, this is the, the bombshell right here. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints.
So we get into the wedding feast as guests. And we're looking around for the bride. Everybody else is there. Bride hadn't showed up yet. She was, maybe she was late. I was late to my own wedding. But we won't go there this morning. So. The guests who don't natively qualify to even gather at the feast of the wedding of the king's son, get in. We qualify because of Christ and his righteousness. And yet we get in there, and as sure as we get in there and sit down in the guest section, all of a sudden we are whisked away by the wedding attendants. Inform us that we are not guests at the wedding of the king's son. We're the bride. God's people will not be guests at the wedding feast of the Lamb. God's people will be the actual bride of the Lamb. And yet do you see how he casts this? Unworthy as we are to even be guests at the wedding, we are declared worthy because of the worth of Jesus. And yet... And yet the, the wedding garment that we are clothed with, it says there, it was granted to her, granted. In other words, gifted, graced to her. It was gifted or granted to her. So in other words, the bride didn't buy her own wedding gown. The, the bride didn't acquire on her own the wedding gown, but it was gifted to her. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then he concludes with this, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You see, it does matter. For those of us who profess the name of Jesus, it does matter how we live. It's not how we live that qualifies us as guests. It certainly isn't how we live that fully qualifies us to be the bride. And yet, when Jesus qualifies us to come to the wedding feast... He also qualifies us to be the kind of people whose actual lives increasingly, growingly, incrementally, expansively display a purity and a brightness and a goodness in how we live, in how we think, in how we relate to each other, and what we determine is important to our lives. Those of us who have earned no standing of righteousness who have been given the gift of righteousness, have also been given the gift of an imparted righteousness by the Spirit of God that we could begin to actually be in our practice a righteous kind of people. Not to, to, to the glory of ourselves, but to the glory of the Lamb who has qualified us to be righteous, both in our standing and in in our practice. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for inviting us to not only be guests, but to be the very bride of Christ. Thank you for qualifying us 
Thank you for what you've done outside of us on our behalf. Thank you for what you are now doing inside of us, through us, and with us, so that we would be your righteous people. So help us to live differently this week. Help us to live differently because of who we are, because of whose we are. We are the bride of Christ, granted a clothing that displays itself in a righteous kind of life. For we ask this in Jesus' name.